I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter 6 in your Bible and uh, maybe put your finger in Revelation chapter 20. Um, We're going to take a look at eternity this morning, so I'm going to ask you this question at the very beginning. Before I ever pray with you and, and we ever dive into any material, who do you know that is destined for hell? Harsh, right? Hard way to ask it. Who do you know in your social circle that does not have a relationship with Jesus? And I guarantee you, you know somebody. I know people in my world who reject Jesus and seemingly have no interest in the things that we're about to examine. You're going to find a very clear line that God has drawn in the sand. And as we examine eternity and the things that are waiting for you and the promises of heaven and the descriptions from the Bible of what heaven looks like, something should pop in your mind. Like, this is exciting, but I know so-and-so has no interest in these things. So when the question is reiterated that John asked you this morning, what am I committed to? Ask yourself that question throughout the midst of this. What am I committed to? What am I going to do with this information? Because I know people. I know people who don't know Jesus. When Paul writes what he did in Romans 6, verse 23, and we've been building towards this for two weeks now. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've got to want to know what is this eternity. There are things about eternity that we can grasp. So here's how I'm going to pray with you right now. I'm going to pray that the things that you learned this morning are not just academic to you. Not that you just go, wow, that was fascinating. There's some information I've never heard before. Not that that is the only thing that happens, but rather, what do I do with this? Because I know people who don't know Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you with hearts that are wide open and and rendered. We position ourselves in a place where you can speak to us. And we've willingly taken our time on a beautiful holiday weekend to be here among your saints, those who would willingly say they worship Jesus Christ. And we're here, Father, for the purpose of edification. We want to be sharpened in our knowledge of who you are and who we are to you. But God, if it stops there, I think we fall short because we know that you expect of us that this information would cause us to be contagious about it. So God, I do ask that you would whet our appetite, that you would encourage us, but at the same time, Father, use it to commit us. I pray for this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So check it out again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Jesus provides that. See, if you believe in Jesus this morning, you already have eternal life. Amen? Okay? You just haven't cashed that check yet. You're not gone from this planet yet. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you already have it and nothing can take it away. So when you have Jesus, 
you literally have everything that makes anything else minor in comparison. Whatever you came in the door with this morning, any of your physical ailments, any of your financial issues, any of your relationship issues, they're all significant, and God cares about them, but they are minuscule in light of the fact that Jesus has you for all eternity. So when Paul writes Romans 6.23, this is really an issue of eternal life versus eternal death, and I hope you approach it this way. There were two individuals in the last service who are Muslim, who have not been in a setting like this before and heard the gospel for the first time. And and it's life transforming. So what we're talking about, people who are watching online right now are hearing information related to their eternal destiny. And if you consider yourself a praying person, pray for people to come to Christ this morning. That they would regard what we're saying as being so weighty that it's comparison comparison between eternal life and eternal death. Chapter 6 of Romans is saying, you either belong to the kingdom of sin or you belong to the kingdom of God. Sin is either your master or God is your master and you serve righteousness. And just to be very, very clear, God gets to define what sin is. Man does not get to do that. We don't get to determine what sin is and what it isn't. God defines sin. And what God calls sin is sin. And if God calls something sin and you say it's not, what you think won't matter in the end. And I know that's harsh, right? That's harsh, but that's God's definition. He says, I am the one that sets the standard of righteousness. I know what righteousness looks like. So in verse 23, Paul says there's a consequence for chasing after sin. The wage of sin is death. So eternal death is the paycheck. It's the compensation for rejecting God's standard of righteousness. And God says righteousness has a name, and its name is Jesus Christ. It's the truth of Scripture. So we understand that there's a danger that we could miss the magnitude of what God's gift is to us, his grace. So Paul says, it's a free gift. It's not just a gift, it's a free gift, which tells me it is not a reward to me. It's not a reward to you for your services rendered to God. God's not paying you back for being a good boy or a good girl all your life. It's God's free gift to you, and there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. It is not by works. It is not by religious ritual. It's not because you picked up the communion cup this morning. That does not save you. It's just evidence that you are. That doesn't save you because that's works. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, basic stuff. I know it's 101 level, but hear this, because some people have never heard it before. For by grace you are saved. It's got nothing to do with works. You're saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Scripture goes on to say, it's not the result of works, lest anyone should boast about it. So just to be clear, Jesus is your only way from sin to righteousness. Jesus is the only way from eternal death to eternal life. And if eternity hangs on this issue, you must understand what is at stake because our time on this planet is a vapor, right? It's a just fleeting vapor. You may be young and think, I've got so many years ahead of you. 
But the truth is, you talk to somebody in their 80s and they'll tell you, wow, did it go fast. It's a vapor. It's just gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. So let's talk about eternity on a really, really grand scale. What the Bible says is that we're engaged right now, even though you may not feel like it, we're engaged in a monumental battle. There's a war taking place around us, a a war of good against evil, dark against light. And in Genesis 22 or Genesis 2, you see an example of that. Genesis 2.17, God sets the standard for righteousness. He, He says to Adam and Eve, the first two of his creation, you shall not eat of the fruit of that tree. And if you do do that, in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. Look at God's own statement. You'll see it on the screen. Genesis 2.17. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's God's standard. He said, this is what righteousness looks like. Follow me, chase after me, obey me. If you do not do that, you will die. But God's standard of righteousness is rejected. By the time you get to Genesis 3, you find Satan calling God a liar. And Satan saying literally to the first two of creation, you will not die. In other words, God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's deceived you. You will not surely die. Rejecting God's standard of righteousness, calling God a liar and saying, I rebel against what God has declared. So God shows up again in the New Testament. Jesus the man saying, unless you believe these things I'm telling you, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we have in the Bible Satan saying one thing and God saying another thing. Who is it that's telling the truth? What do you do with this information? Well, if it's a case of Satan telling you one thing and Jesus telling you another thing, I know who I'm believing. How about you? I believe that Jesus is telling the truth. I know who I'm choosing. So the most significant issue related to eternity is that God always tells the truth. He does not lie. He cannot lie. He is always just. So if you have to stand before the judge of all the earth one day, if you have to stand before that one, you want to know that he is truth and that he is just. And Revelation chapter 20 tells you exactly those things. So if you put your finger in Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to ask you to turn there from Romans 6 right now. And very quickly, I'm going to take you through some descriptions of heaven. First things that we need to see is what did John see when he entered into this realm? We're told in chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne. And when you see the word great in the New Testament in this particular case, it's the word megas. And it means something massive, but I'll clarify that for you in just a minute. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. So a great white throne and someone is sitting on it. And this is the image of a judge seated at the throne. Great, I told you, is the word megas. And typically it would mean massive in size. But in this particular case, not only massive in size, but in significance in majesty, and in authority. And John also writes that it's white. Now, in the Bible, white means purity, and it means holiness, and it means just. So that's telling us that the verdicts that are rendered from this throne will be absolutely righteous and absolutely just. We can trust what that one says. 
for a court to render indisputable verdicts, several things have to be true. We do not have a court system in our world that can render indisputable verdicts. They are disputed. But for indisputable verdicts to be rendered, a court has to have, first of all, an infallible judge. It also has to have unquestionable standards, righteous standards. A court would also have to have the authority to back up the verdict. And it would require a comprehensive knowledge of all of the details. You won't find a court system like that on planet Earth. You only find that referred to in the Bible. There is truth about this one who sits on the throne. I want you to see the truth about his nature and character. It says this in 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one: As for God, his way is blameless. That means he's infallible. That judge cannot make mistakes. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Check this. Nothing compels God to act justly. Justice is his very nature. It's who he is. So let's look at this one who's sitting on the throne. Verse 11 of chapter 20 says, him who sat upon it. And that means there's an entity there. Who is this? Well, this is Almighty God, but it's Almighty God the Son, because Jesus told us that even the Father does not judge anyone, but God the Son. Look with me up on the screen. Jesus' own words, John 5, 22. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So the very first thing that John wanted us to know when he's writing this, Revelation describes the judge on his throne, and then this amazing image out of chapter 20. Verse 11 says, earth and heaven, it fled away from his presence. If you go on to read the rest of verse 11, it says, there's no place found for earth and heaven. This is absolutely shocking for us to read it 2,000 years after John wrote it down, but for John to see it firsthand, he's looking at the uncreation of creation. Why? Why is earth and heaven demolished? You'll see that that's the case in just a moment. Because of what it's talking about is this fallen sphere of creation, meaning the heavens around our planet, the sky, the atmosphere, the air that we breathe, and this planet that we walk on, it is decaying, it is degrading. It happened ever since the fall. It is dying. That's why things around you don't work the way they're supposed to work. That's why things are broken. That's why relationships fail, because of the curse and God's got to undo all of that. So this planet, there's coming a day when it will all be destroyed. It's the uncreation. Second Peter 3.10 says this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning very fast and when no one's expecting it. It will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Well, that's a match for Revelation 21.1. I don't want to go into 21 yet, but I want to give you just this verse as an example. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. God will in the future create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, why would he need a new heaven? We're not talking about the heaven where God dwells. The Bible refers to three heavens, the atmosphere, the air that you breathe around you, where you walk. 
the heaven where the stars are at, the solar system. That's the second heaven. And the third heaven is the heaven where God dwells. So John's writing about the heavenly atmosphere that's around this planet. There's going to be a new atmosphere and a new earth. What is being described as absolutely extraordinary, unearthly. I can't get my mind around it, and you can't either. But it's a vanishing of everything we've ever known. And we're left with one reality. The only reality is God on his throne. And in this moment, he summons a distinct group of people before his throne. Look with me on the screen at Revelation 20, verse 12. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So books are opened, and there's two sets of books going on here. There's the book of life, which is the Lamb's book of life, which has the names of those who are believers. And the other books are opened, and every thought and every word and every deed and every action is placed in those books as indisputable proof. Because in God's sight, nothing is missed. Nothing is overlooked. Nothing is forgotten because he's perfect and he's infallible and he can't make mistakes. So he has comprehensive records. Why a book of actions? Because actions reflect whether or not someone measured up to God's standard of righteousness. God set the standard. Did someone come short? Did someone fall short of the glory of God? Because God is just, his justice demands a payment for sin. And here is where bright light breaks in for believers in Jesus Christ. You got sin on you? Jesus became sin so that you wouldn't have to be judged for your sin. Scripture says very clearly, he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf. You see it on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the what, church? The, the righteousness. That we might meet God's standard of righteousness so that we could inherit all that's going to be described here in the book of Revelation. That we might be the righteousness of God in Him, meaning in Jesus Christ. So we've got a distinct group of people standing in front of this white throne that is megas, that has this perfect judge sitting on it. And in chapter 20, they're about to be judged. Who are they? Because the judge is going to render a verdict. They are those who do not have the righteousness of God on them. They are those who can't stand before him and claim Jesus. They do not believe on Jesus. And Jesus said in John 8, 44, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we're left with a choice. Do I believe what he's saying or not? Those who believe, those who believe Jesus, who belong to him, will not be eternally judged. How can I say that? I can say that, get your amens ready, because you are forgiven. Amen? You are forgiven. You're forgiven. That's why you lift the cup. That's why you pick up the bread to remember. He died for me so that I could be forgiven. I'm forgiven so I don't have to stand before this throne. So we find Paul writing in Romans 6, 23, 
wages of sin. It's death. But the gift, the free gift of God, it's eternity. It's mine and it belongs to me because I'm in Jesus. So if you belong to him, let me give you a glimpse of your eternal home and what is waiting for you. If you have your notes out this morning, you might want to write down some of these verses just to remind yourself. I think Christians fail to remember what's waiting for me. We fail to remember often enough. And God gave us this to excite us, to build anticipation that we would understand what he's put in place for us. Understand what you're about to see is so dramatically different from everything that you know that the authors actually have to use the word know over and over again. They have to compare it with negatives like this. There's no death. There's no dying. There's no mourning. There's no sickness. There's no grief. There's no pain. Why? Because that's what we know, K-N-O-W. We know grief. We know pain. We know suffering. We know death. We know loss. But the descriptions here are completely different than that because that does not exist in heaven where we will have glorified bodies. And just a rabbit trail with you for a minute, yes, you will eat in heaven as well, right? The calories won't count. Can I get a witness? Okay. That's exciting enough, but we won't spend any time on that this morning. Not subject to pain of any kind. Verse 10 of chapter 21, it says this. This is a, he's talking about an angel escorting him. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper, highly descriptive. John's in his 90s when he's writing the book of Revelation. He met Jesus when he was in his 20s. He's walked with Jesus all of his adult life, and the first thing that he wants you to know of what he saw when he's in his 90s, and this is revealed to him, he wants you to know that he got to see God's Shekinah glory. I got to see the glory of God, and it's blazing through the walls of this city. It's the most distinguishing feature that jumped out at him. Blazing light streaming through the walls, and he said, it is brilliant. Brilliant in the Greek language is the word foster, and it means to be luminous, something that is glowing. Well, you understand why the walls are made as translucent as they are. And by the way, we're talking about just the city here. This isn't heaven itself. It's the capital city of heaven. And God is radiating through it, and its brilliance is like a costly stone. He says, like a very costly stone. I notice as I read through the book of Revelation and other places in the Bible that God is big on jewels. God is big on precious stones. So if you're into jewelry, you're biblical. Hey, don't quote me on that, right? You love jewelry, that it's just kind of a match for what you see God bringing out here. Watch in verse 12 and 13. And it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. So a great megas, the word is repeated again, a megas high wall. And it's got specific dimensions. Truth, there is way more here than what's being described here. Paul is, or John is reaching when he uses the words like. He says it's like this, it's like that. 
but he gets very specific on some items. And he said, there's not just one pearly gate. There's 12 of them, allowing people to stream in from all directions. And at the very entrance to the heavenly city, we see a legacy of God's work on earth. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel, what is that? That's people. A legacy of God's work among people, engraved into heaven. But when you go to verse 14, you see God's legacy in the church. Watch with me in verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So John, check this, is looking at his own name carved into heaven's foundation. Would that not be cool? Would you not love to see your name carved into heaven? There's no mistaking that he belongs there, right? And he sees his name and the apostles' names carved. It's like the legacy of what God did among his people. A beautiful picture of the harmony of the old covenant and the new covenant working together right at the entrance to the city. And when you see the word city being used here, it's very deliberate. What do you think of when you think of Grand Rapids, Lansing, New York City, Dallas? You think of social life. You think of the hub and the hustle. You think of relationships. You think of like-mindedness. And we see this word city used here describing social life and unity. Watch in verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. The largest city we know of in the world today is Shanghai. Shanghai, China, 24 million people. That's the largest city population-wise. The largest city geographically as far as landmass is Tokyo. Tokyo, Japan, about 18 million people. New York City is massive. Lots and lots of people living there. Each of these cities I'm listing are minuscule in comparison to what you're seeing here. It says its length and width and height are equal, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, and it's as high as it is wide. It's a cube, a perfect cube, much like God designed the Holy of Holies in the temple for Israel, a perfect cube, and it is massive. The measurements are staggering. I did a little measurement myself because I understand commercial construction to some degree, and I know that in commercial construction, typically, they allow between 10 and 12 foot for ceilings in commercial buildings, and then some spans above that for the infrastructure. And I thought, well, if there were um, floors to this 1,500 high foot wall, how many floors could there possibly fit in this? And so I thought, well, maybe you guys would be a little taller in heaven's possibility. So I'll give you a 20-foot ceiling in your abode, okay? And God says he's going to prepare this place for you. So he's designing this building, this massive city, so high that John says it's 1,500 miles high. Now, the tallest buildings that we know in this planet, like the Sears Tower, have somewhere between, what, 120 and 140 floors? How many floors could you fit into something that's 1,500 miles high? Well, if I allowed you 20 foot for each of your floors, you could have 394,000 floors. And you're just thinking, how do I get to the top floor? All right, and what kind of elevator system is that? Well, you got a glorified body, so you can take that up with God. I don't know how you're going to get there. But the measurements are staggering. What you're picking up on here is this spectrum of dazzling beauty. It's 
breathtaking. And that's why John is reaching with words like, 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 like. And he uses the best he's got to describe this thing that's got colors flashing from this cube. Your God is a God of beauty. And he lavishes his beauty on you. Do you allow yourself to stop and think about that? It's rare that we even allow ourselves to stop and think about the fact that we have eternity and it's mine. Think about what Jesus said. I go to prepare a place for you. Look with me on the screen. Look at his commitment to you, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Back it up. Check out the next part. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Just bear down with me, just on a couple words. In the very beginning, I go to prepare a place for you. It's for me. Even if you have to whisper it under your breath right now, just say it to yourself. It's for me. It's for me. Jesus said, I'm doing this for you. Revelation 21, 21. And the 12 gates, at the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Translucent gold is not something that's familiar to us here on earth. We look at 24 karat gold bars, and they're really yellow in their appearance. But God doesn't lie, and he's giving a specific description here, and we're told that the purest form of gold is actually translucent, and that there's many gates here, and each gate is made of one single gigantic pearl. Check this out. The walls of the city are 1,500 miles high, and we've got a pearl gate entrance. How big did that oyster have to be to produce that pearl? Well, God doesn't need an oyster to make a pearl, right? He doesn't need that. He can just speak it into existence. But what we understand is everything is of dazzling beauty. And everything is chosen specifically to reflect God's glory. And he said, I'm doing this for you. And it's translucent because nothing is hidden. This next verse backs that up. Verse 22 of chapter 21, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In antiquity, every city, no matter where you would go, you would find a temple or a church. Today, the same is true. People want to reach out to God. They want to know Him. They want to understand no matter where you go, you find a church and a temple. As long as there has been sin on this planet, there has been a need to reach out to God. If you go back far enough in time, you'll find that man walked with God and there was no need of a temple because God walked with man. But man rejected God, rejected his standard of righteousness. So in the Old Testament, God said, build a temple and you can come there and worship me. In the New Testament, God said, you church will be my temple and I will dwell within you. My spirit will be placed within you. But the spirit of God that's placed within you, that's in you right now, was given to you just as a pledge, a pledge of something very significant. Look with me on the screen at Ephesians 1.13. 
you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our, what church? Inheritance. What's your inheritance? Eternity. Eternal life with God. Eternity is the pledge of what God says is waiting for you. Verse 23 of Revelation 21, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is radically different from everything that I know. Every month I have to pay a power bill at my house. I have to pay for an energy source to come to my house. I have to put gasoline in my tank. I have to call the propane company to bring propane to me. You have to do the same thing. You have to change light bulbs because the filaments burn out. But we find here that there's no need for that. There's no need for radiant heat. There's no filaments to burn out. There's no gas tanks to refill. Why? Because God's there. Jesus is right at the center, and he is the light source, and it flows from him and illuminates everything. Go forward with me. We go from an overview down to a street view, and these are the last few details. Chapter 22, verse 1, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. The river of the water of life. Now, God is always associated in the Bible as being the source of the water of life. And we're told right here, it's coming right from his throne, from the throne cascading down. I'm kind of picturing it like a waterfall. I love waterfalls. Maybe that's why it pops in my mind that way. But it's flowing from God as like a stream right out from his throne. Why are we seeing this picture here? Well, because of the next component. It's told through the middle of its street in the translation you see on the screen, but in the Greek language, it actually says it's found in the middle of its pathway. On either side of its pathway is the tree of life. Now, you haven't heard of or seen it since Genesis chapter 3, when God pushed man out because man rejected God's righteous standard, and God pushed man out of the garden and said, I will not allow them to make use of the tree of life. So he placed an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. Man couldn't go back in. He couldn't have access to the tree of life. But here it is. The thing that was originally forfeited by our ancestors is now straddling the banks of this crystal river. Go into Revelation 22 later today yourself and read some of the descriptions. I'm just skimming over it. And you will see it is like a beautiful garden of Eden, talking about fruit trees. It's amazing imagery. Last couple details. Revelation 22, 3. Here's the best part. I saved it for last. There will no longer be any curse. John could have stopped right there. If that's the only detail I knew about heaven, I'd be good with that. I could look forward to eternity if I only knew there will be no curse. See, you and I have become so accustomed to it, we live with it, we eat it, we sleep it, we drink it every single day. Failure haunts our dreams because of the curse. We are incomplete because of the curse. We make judgment errors because of the curse. Things pop in our mind 
because of the curse. No joke, during the night, I woke up at three in the morning because I had a dream that it was 9.13 in the morning and I was still at home sleeping in bed. I thought that I overslept the alarm and immediately I was thinking, oh no, how do I call people and tell them I'll be there in two minutes? I can't be there in two minutes. For me, immediately I was thinking, oh, the curse. It's just a dream. These things that pop in your mind that you live with every day, it's a result of the fall that I failed. I've done these things that are wrong. And John says, there is no longer any curse. It is the most dramatic change from what you know on planet Earth. The removal of the curse means no more loss, no more suffering, no more pain, absolutely no trace of Adam's rebellion and all our failures. Question, do you have someone that you know today that has gone before you that's already there? Do you have someone that you love who is in the presence of God right now? God gives you a beautiful image, if that's the case, when he says, I put my name on them. You see that description there? His name will be on them. Now that's a security system. God says, I engrave my name right on you. You may not like the thought of Jesus' name being right on your forehead, but that's what he says. How it works, I don't know. Is it a tattoo or is it studded diamonds? I don't care. What I know is that he owns me and he belongs to me and I belong to him. We think we have a great children's registration program here. You can't get your kids when you check them in if you don't have a matching badge to get them back out. That's a security system, but God's got a better security system. He says, I'm engraving my name on you. It is the proof of ownership that he's talking about here. These things that I've described for you this morning, we only vaguely understand them. I spent 43 weeks in 2010 teaching the book of Revelation. It took a long time to get through that, and that was seven years ago. And in a chunk of that, we examined heaven. We have just scratched the surface this morning. There are things waiting for you you have not begun to imagine. That's why Scripture says we're just looking through like a fog here. It's like a misty mirror. There's one more detail for you. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, as it is written, there are things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love him this morning? Do you say, I belong? I am committed to that. He is my savior and he's got me. These are more than words on a page, church. God can not lie. And I hope, I pray that you never get to the place where this is mundane, where you treat it as though, I've heard all this before. No, this is fresh and new. This is God saying, I want you to know this information. One, that it would excite your anticipation. But two, so that you would ask yourself, what am I going to do with this? Because I know people, I know people who have rejected Jesus. I know people who don't know about him. So Paul very boldly writes in Romans 6, 23, the free gift of God is eternity. And it 
can be yours. It's found in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, it's already yours. It belongs to you. You have eternal life and nothing can take it away. So I'm asking you this morning, what are you going to do with it? What are you committed to? I'm going to pray with you, and the worship team is going to come up here and close us with a song that is powerful, and you can't sing it unless you mean it, because it talks about you taking a stand for the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts have been opened through your word, and you have illuminated our minds because your Holy Spirit is faithful to do that. And you said that your word is alive and active, so I ask that you would use this. Translate it into activity on our part this week. Not just that we have this peace, and God, we do, that you promised this to us, but that we have more than that, God, that we have the opportunity to take this information and help others understand it. Father, I pray for your saints who have gathered this morning, for those who understand this, This is about claiming the promise and moving forward in belief that this promise is real. God, I ask for those who might not have surrendered their life to Christ yet, I I plead that you would continue to work upon them. I know your heart is greater than mine on this issue. You're not willing that any would perish. So for those who don't know you yet, God, move them towards surrendering their life to Jesus. As we sing now, Father, I pray that you would take this as a song of commitment from us, that we would indeed reflect the words we're about to claim. And we ask for this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.